From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Zora Neale Hurston's novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, is a staple on high school and college reading lists. Published in 1937, it could have easily disappeared into obscurity, but for a young Georgia writer named Alice Walker. A decade before winning the Pulitzer Prize, Walker made a pilgrimage to South Florida to find more about Hurston's life. Her essay about discovering Hurston's unmarked grave in an overgrown cemetery helped revive interest in the author, anthropologist, and folklorist who spent her final years in poverty. What happened to one of the leading lights of the Harlem Renaissance movement? Well, Michael Adnow wrote about following her ghostly trail for The Bitter Southerner this week, and he's joining me via Skype from Florida, where he is a writer and photographer. Michael, great to speak with you. It's great to be back, Virginia. You found a number of myths circulating around the life of Zora Neale Hurston, some of her own making. Like what? Well, I think the most prominent one was that uh, everyone believed that she was born in 1901. Some people had it as 1902. And so throughout her life, there was a lot of debate about even when she died, she died in 1960. People weren't sure what age she was because she would tell people different ages. And then the other big myth was that she was born in Edenville, Florida, which turned out not to be true. And that was discovered, you know, long after her death. So the kind of the seminal biography that was written of her by Robert Hemingway in 1977, that, you know, all those myths were there. So they were kind of galvanized by biographers and writers and, you know, everyone who knew her. And she wrote herself about I get born in in her book. But, you know, this is part of the nature of myths is embedded in the work that she was doing. She was gathering folk tales and songs handed down through oral traditions. So were her myths about herself in service to a better story or do you think something bigger was operating for her? When you when you look at the span of her career, the things that she covered as a reporter, as a novelist, as a folklorist, as an anthropologist, what you see is that there was this emphasis on storytelling, and it wasn't so much lying. It was, you know, that these folk tales were in service of something bigger. And so I think that in her own personal case, it was, you know, to kind of circumvent or mitigate any kind of prejudice against her, uh, whether she was a little bit older, because by the time she had, you know, actually finished high school, I mean, she was in she was in her twenties, and so. There were ways that it just served her in a really pragmatic way. And then also, I just think for the sake of telling good stories, I mean, she would tell little fibs and things. And ultimately, when you kind of lay it out, they were in service of some greater, bigger truth, something that we wouldn't otherwise know. The old never get let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah, yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Zora, of course, was a protege of Franz Boas, who was a famous um, instrumental anthropologist, friends with Langston Hughes, County Cullen, Alan Lomax, a folklorist himself, a great cultural and intellectual light. But then by 1961, her books are out of print, some never published. After her death, her friend Fanny Hurst wrote, She lived carelessly, at least at the time I knew her, and her zest for life was cruelly at odds with her lonely death. Do you, after looking at so many aspects of her life and the people who wrote biographies about her, think she played a role in extinguishing her own light? I don't think so. I think um, it's such a complicated question, but the best way that I've heard it put was by Kevin Young, the poet, and he's also the poetry editor at The New Yorker and the director of the Schomburg Center. 
Former Atlantan, by the way. Yes, yes, yes. And he was telling me, the way that he put it, he said, you know, not everyone survived the good times. And I think that Hurston was just too complicated of a figure. I mean, she just didn't fit the mold. You know, she was this, you know, this black female Southerner. She was a part of the Talented 10th and a part of the Harlem Renaissance, but the kind of new Negro movement was not in line with where she was headed. And I mean, she was just... She was too much herself to be a part of that. She was, she didn't fit the mold. She was, you know, this um, kind of staunch conservative. You know, she had come out against Brown versus the Board of Education, which she was kind of, you know, loathed for. And, you know, people saw that as reprehensible and kind of damaging to the, this kind of black movement during her lifetime. It, it made it more challenging, maybe than, you know, kind of showing your teeth and playing nice. How do you understand her opposition to Brown v. Board of Ed? Other into black intellectuals of the time, James Baldwin among them, opposed it. Or And this is what some people, as you mentioned, found reprehensible about her. What was the nature of her opposition? I think that what people don't understand, and especially when you have critics of this, is that the South was very different. I mean, in the South, there were black communities that had, that had totally formed around themselves, you know, like um, it all over Florida, all over Georgia, all over Alabama, um, you know, people were afraid that those communities would dissolve with, with desegregation. And what you saw is that they, they in fact did. I mm-hmm. mean, like they lost so much. Of course, yeah, we were, you know, there was this integration of schools and people were able to go to, you know, um, you know, white colleges and so on and so forth. But I think that for Hurston, who grew up in one of the first incorporated black towns in the entire country, I mean, this was a town where everyone was black and it wasn't just the black part of a white town. It was a black town and there was a, you know, immense, immense like source of pride there because that was a town that had formed in in the 19th century and so people there had owned land for you know a very long time um there was the roots ran really deep there and so for her she could see that there would be this harm done if it was if it was done hastily which in a lot of cases it was We're going to take a quick break and be back with Michael Agno. His feature on Zora Neale Hurston is available today at The Bitter Southerner. And we'll leave you with the voice of Zora Neale Hurston herself singing. Can't you move it? Hey, can't you try? We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Alice Walker to Toni Morrison, generations of African-American female writers and others have learned from author and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston. We're continuing our conversation with Michael Adnow. He's been following the life of Zora Neale Hurston, not always a straight path, and his feature on The Writer is now available on The Bitter Southerner. So, Michael, when Zora Neale Hurston died, she was broke. She had had a benefactor early on. She attended a few colleges. She won Guggenheim fellowships, big prestigious awards, wrote novels, was a columnist. But in the end, she owed money to the hospital, uh, the home where she was convalescing after a stroke. How and why did she die in such an obscure state? She never garnered much money. I mean, her advances were much lower than that of, you know, her contemporaries and her peers. So she moves to Fort Pierce, Florida, which is 
it's about 120 miles north of Miami on the East Coast. And um, she moved there in 1957. She was invited there by uh, the editor of the Fort Pierce Chronicle. And she was going to start a column there. And so when she moved there, she had started working for this newspaper. And at this point, she's been working on this book, Herod the Great, this manuscript for this book for for quite a while. And you know, she's just living check to check. And she had been for quite some time at that point, though, she's also working as a substitute teacher and, you know, her health is failing. So by, you know, two years later in 1959, she suffers her first stroke. And um, that's where she's kind of forced to apply for welfare and then sent from the hospital to this this nursing home. She would just kind of work odd jobs throughout her life as a maid, as a librarian, as a substitute teacher, um, as an assistant, a secretary, and she would write almost every day. But um, the work that we know and think of as so important was not work that she garnered much money or could make a living from. I mean, when she had a Guggenheim fellowship, she was able to live and work as she might have liked, but otherwise it was, you know, slim pickings. Yeah, she was buried in Fort Pierce in the end. I think it's safe to say that without Alice Walker, many of us would not know who Zora Hurston is. And, and, and you followed Walker's pilgrimage that led to the revived interest, the publication of books like And Their Eyes Were Washing God. Uh, as you point out, now she's on mugs and magnets. So, And there's an annual festival, a Zora festival in Eatonville, Florida. So finally, this town is owning, uh, on some level, one of its great residents but there have also been, you mentioned the biographies, Robert Hemingway in 77, Deborah Plant later, and here in Georgia, the writer and professor Valerie Boyd, who wrote Wrapped in Rainbows about Hurston while she was still working in the AJC. So what what was she wanting to add to Hurston's story? And, and what are people like you wanting to add to that? You know, I find it really difficult to articulate, but it was very inspiring to see how without Alice Walker, we would not know this person's work. And without knowing Zora Neale Hurston's work, I, I think that the world would be lesser for it. And I think a lot of writers would be lesser for it. I mean, I think she really forged this path. And so Walker kind of leading to the resurgence of her and then Hemingway kind of galvanizing that ascension was was phenomenal. But as Valerie Boyd tells the story, you know, she had she had gone to the inaugural Zora Festival in Eatonville in 1989. But then at the fifth Zora Festival, she saw Robert Hemingway speak and he was criticizing his own biography. I mean, he was saying that he, he believed that he had missed things. And, and, you know, the main reason for that was that he was a white American writing about a black American, a man writing about a woman. And as she remembers, he said, it's time for a new biography to be written and it needs to be written by a black woman. Boyd, who was in the audience, was kind of I don't know. She she felt afraid to take something like that on. And then, you know, two years later, she gets a call from a literary agent kind of seeking out if anyone if she would be interested in writing this biography of Hurston. And then, um, you know, she kind of sets to it from there and starts figuring it out and looking at the holes in Hemingway's biography and working with him and looking over his notes and seeing who and who he didn't interview. And then she sets to it. And when that book comes out in 2003, I mean, it becomes the definitive 
biography of Zora Hurston. I mean, there's so many things that were undiscovered until Boyd set to that path. And then Deborah Plant, you know, years later comes along and knows that there is this definitive biography. But as she would put it, she wrote this kind of spiritual biography of Hurston. So covering different ground, but, you know, it's almost like where Boyd's biography ends, Plant's begins. And, you know, Boyd's biography really does end with her death. And Plant's kind of begins there. And all these people, I mean, it's like this kind of metaphorical chain. And they're kind of speaking across generations and to each other. And, you know, they're of different ages and from different places. And it's very interesting to see that, that kind of patchwork and how all those things are connected and where they kind of touch each other, where they press up against each other. And for me, it's just, uh, it was an honor to just learn about that and to hear those stories. I mean, to hear of Alice Walker's pilgrimage, you know, 40 some years ago, to hear of Valerie Boyd's experience writing the book, uh, to hear the experience of Deborah Plant editing, you know, this manuscript that was 80 years old that belonged to Hurston, which is now Barracoon. Um, and so for me, that was just a total pleasure. I was just so grateful to listen. And the story is still great, even though it's the truth. <laughs> yeah. Michael Adno, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Michael Adno's new feature on Zora Neale Hurston is available at The Bitter Southerner. And we're going to leave you with Zora Neale Hurston herself. Here she is singing a folk song. But this will bring you back.